All right. Um, so just by the by the way here, this Bible right here, if anybody's curious, this is I, I've talked a number of times about the Greek Old Testament, how important the Greek Old Testament is. And uh, this is an English translation of the Greek Old Testament. Uh, and so if just if anybody's ever curious and they want to check it out, see that, that's good. It, it's important for a number of reasons. Like I, just one comes to my mind right away. The... Uh, the um, Philistines, which are in Hebrew, I'm not sure, probably like Parushim, something like that. I can't quite recall how to say it in Hebrew, but the Philistines are translated in the Greek as the uh, Alophiles. Okay, Alophiles, which means other tribe, other tribe, the other tribe people. And uh, there's just a lot of really unique translations like that. And it's it tells you the mindset of the um, of the ancient Jews hundreds of years before Christ was born, and it sets up the religious context and setting for the New Testament. And then, of course, in the New Testament itself, it's oftentimes directly quoting from the Greek Old Testament and not directly from the Hebrew. So sometimes you'll be reading the Old Testament, and this most of our Old Testaments are translations from the Hebrew. And so we'll find a passage in the New Testament it's quoting a certain book in the Old Testament. We go and we're kind of like, ah, I don't know, like the New Testament quotation doesn't really exactly line up with the Old Testament quotation. Why is that? Well, if you look in here, it does. Because oftentimes the New Testament's quoting the old, the Greek Old Testament and not, it's not quoting the Hebrew Old Testament. And there's a little, there's differences. There's different readings between the two. So uh, it's it's important uh, to read the to be able to familiarize yourself with the Greek Old Testament, and that's just out of curiosity. If you got, if you want to look at it, I've got a copy of uh, a modern translation of it here. Uh, tonight, um, what's amazing? I'm amazed by this material here. I was saying to Nancy and to and to Jean that I, you know my by the third year of doing this is actually going to be good uh, because right now I'm creating it, you know, and I can't. It's sometimes it's hard to predict how much material I can get in in a particular uh, study. So I was joking last time about how we're going to go from, what is it, this is the fifth session with Abraham, or maybe is it even the sixth? I think it's the fifth, right? And I thought it would be just three, and then I said, well, I think we got to go four, and then I say, we think we got to go five. You know what? I mean, I think I could do another one. I mean, these two, I, this one tonight I think could become two, but we're going to stop it regardless. We're just going to stop it and go on to, to Moses. Starting in January, because otherwise we won't get through this thing. So um, tonight, I want to look at Abraham as uh, having a relationship with his children, with his spiritual children, across the ages, across the ages. And then I want to look at the Magnificat. That's Mary's song. It's very appropriate for Christmas. And again, I, you know, I'll time it next year or the year after that. I'll time it really, really well so that they're all, it's all Christmassy themes right now. Um, so we're going to look at the Magnificat, which is Mary's song after she, the, the uh, you know, the angel Gabriel visits her, and then she goes and she visits her cousin uh, Elizabeth, and then you have Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and the Benedictus, his song. So I want to look at both of those and how both of those poems or both of those songs are an encapsulation of salvation history, and that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to encapsulate salvation history in one lesson, the whole Bible, basically. In, in one you know series or one study, so let's look on the the first page here. Um, it says uh, Abraham across salvation history. So we want to look at Abraham's relationship to his spiritual children across 
uh, the ages. And the uh, everybody's read Luke chapter 1, I, I would imagine. Um, the one verse that I want to draw your attention to, and it's just amazing how subtle these things are. And I mean, I've probably read it 25 times. I mean, I probably read, I probably read it more than that. I probably read it 30 times. And I never would have noticed it, but then I read a commentary once, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that is an amazingly remarkable and insightful and deep verse, and it's got a lot of significance to it. And I wouldn't have ever seen it on my own, but it was the commentary that I read that helped me see that. It's Luke chapter 1, verse 17. And John the Baptist is, uh, you know, basically there's a prophecy about John the Baptist is going to come. And um, so if we see here, if we start in verse 8, Zechariah is in the temple, and he's ministering in the temple, in the Old Testament temple. He's an Old Testament priest. And uh, all the people are outside praying. It's the hour of incense. And then within the holy place, uh, my sense of the matter is that there's... uh, he was in the holy place and not the holy of holies. So in the Old Testament temple, when you walked into it, um, it was like no lady was allowed in this thing. Only the priest could go in there and it had two compartments. And in the deepest compartment, it was called, it's called the holy of holies. And only the high priest could go and only once a year on Yom Kippur, which was the day of atonement. And he brought in, uh, the, the blood of the sacrifice and he, and he splashed it on the on the Ark of the Covenant. And then, of course, in Zechariah's day, the Ark of the Covenant was missing or gone. It was mysteriously gone. There's legends about where it is and all this stuff. But uh, in any event, the priest would still go in there and just probably sp- sprinkle the blood in the direction of where the Ark would have been. And uh, But on a daily basis, the other priest would go into the holy place, into the, like, the more superficial compartment of, of the sanctuary. And so that's where Zechariah is right now. So he's in there, and it's the hour of incense where he's burning incense, and um, and the angel appears to him and then talks to him about uh, your your su- your wife is going to conceive and she's going to give birth to this famous this important prophet. Okay, so it started in verse fourteen, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he shall drink no wine nor strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. So he's going to turn the sons of Israel. So there's an issue of conversion. He's going to convert them to God. And he will go uh, before him, before the Lord God, in the spirit and power of Elijah. So we're talking about that we got to, it's important to know who Elijah is to understand who John the Baptist is. And for the purpose of turning the hearts, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. This is John the Baptist's vocation. And again, like I said, I probably read that 30 times and I would keep reading. I could have read another 30 times. It never would have really... I would have realized I realized it was an allusion to Malachi, to the prophet Malachi. But I don't know if I would have really got it until I read this one commentary. Uh, and what I learned from there is you realize that the fathers that they're referencing to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the fathers that they're referring to are the Old Testament patriarchs. Okay? So that's a very interesting thought. Okay, just kind of let that sink in. So John the Baptist's ministry is going to result in the conversion of the children of the fathers, but the turning of the hearts of the fathers to the children 
So that has serious implications. That means that the fathers are aware of the children. And we're talking generations and generations and generations and generations, 2,000 years after Abraham. Abraham is fully aware and cognizant of the, the descendants, the people of Israel. And that when they convert, Abraham's heart is going to turn to them. So there's this spiritual communion between Abraham and the people that lived in John the Baptist's day, the Israelites that lived in John the Baptist's day. So uh, that is the communion of saints. I mean, we see the communion of saints right there. So the word fathers here for Luke is a reference not to the fathers walking around on earth contemporaneously with John the Baptist, but to the patriarchs and the spiritual fathers and saints of the Old Testament. Okay, So the patriarchs and Abraham in particular is in mind. And then I've got a string of quotations from Luke and from Acts that demonstrate that. So whenever the word fathers shows up in Luke and Acts, it's usually a reference to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the Old Testament fathers in general, but really specifically Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and then even in particular Abraham. Okay, And uh, one of the ways of kind of like, if you want to learn how the significance of a word in a particular uh, passage, you look at maybe it's broader context like the paragraph. Okay, and then maybe you want to step back and look at the chapter. Then you want to look at how it's used in the whole book. And then we have to remember that Luke is the author of Luke and Acts, so that it's kind of a two-volume work, so that you can look at both Luke and Acts to inform the meaning of a particular passage in either Luke or Acts. Okay, uh, And then, of course, the broadest context within which to kind of elucidate a particular passage is the entire Bible which is what we're doing we've been doing throughout this entire series of cor- of uh, lessons all right so if you look at all those passages and if i had the powerpoint up i'd just be able to roll through those passages and show you but i you know i don't have it up so uh you have to take my word for it or on your own if you if you're curious you can look them up now the bigger the bigger uh old testament passage that this is an allusion to is malachi chapter 4 verses 4 through 6 and if you want you can turn to that um Malachi is going to be found, it's basically like one of the last books of the Old Testament. So if you just kind of, uh, the order, the traditional order is, Ma- is the Maccabees, the one and two Maccabees are the final books of the Old Testament. And then um, right before Maccabees you have Malachi. So if you look in Malachi, Chapter 4, Malachi is a prophet who's writing probably around the year, oh, I don't know, 400 or so B.C. He's kind of coming towards the end of the Old Testament prophets. He's one of the last Old Testament prophets to prophesy. And he prophesies about the, the, the final end day, the end of the world. Okay, Maccabees probably are placed in a different uh, different section then. So, um, Malachi chapter, oh, it's only up to chapter 3, you're saying? Yeah. Oh, oh, maybe that's the Hebrew enumeration. That's probably what it is. Because there's sometimes there's a slightly difference between the Hebrew and the Christian enumeration of chapters right. and verses. Stop it here. Okay. So, uh, I don't know what to tell you. I, let me actually, let me, let me look. I could, I could locate it easily enough. It would be chapter, uh, 3, verse 22. Okay. 
So chapter 3, verse 22 in the Jewish enumeration, or chapter 4, verse 4 in the the Hebrew enumeration, says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and ordinances that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Horeb is Mount Sinai, another name for Mount Sinai. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of of children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Now, the whole curse thing is um, Elijah. See, now to understand that passage, we should go back to Kings to, to read about the prophetic ministry of Elijah. Elijah, right from the beginning, he said, the first time we see Elijah, he's prophesying to this wicked king, Ahab, of the northern kingdom, and he says, By my word, there shall be neither rain nor snow for wish that he was saying that now, right? right? Neither rain nor snow for a certain amount of time. Okay, and so he stops up the heavens. Elijah is known for having the power to stop up the heavens so that they don't send any rain. So famine comes over the land because the people have been sinful and idolatrous, and Ahab the king has been leading the nation to worship false gods, and he's been leading Israel astray away from the law of Moses and from the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the covenant is being threatened, like the, the dissolution of the covenant is, is at stake. Okay, so it's really when the covenant is going to, uh, going to fall apart, the land starts to fall apart. Because remember, the promise to Abraham is, involves the land. Okay, I'm going to give you this land. So the land was very, very closely intertwined with the promise, and so there's a famine on the land. And the land is going through. The land is suffering along with suffering as a result of the sins of the people. And so this is what this is Elijah's ministry, basically. And so the people eventually uh, it comes to it comes to this big conflict between Elijah and the false prophets. So Elijah is one of the few prophets, true prophets left, and the false prophets of Baal, the god Baal, they come with a big showdown. And you guys probably know this story from, from Sunday schools or from our Mass readings. We have it in Mass, and uh, the daily Mass at least. They set up these two altars and they, and they slay the sacrifices and they lay them on the altars and they say, okay, whatever God answers by fire is the true God. And so the prophets of Baal, they, they, oh, Baal, hear us. And they're calling upon Baal from noon until uh, midday and nothing happens. And then Elijah comes out and he has this really dramatic uh, prayer that he prays. And so we can look at that in 1, King, uh, 1 Kings 18. So it's in the, the prophets of Baal call upon their, their false god in vain. And, uh, but now it's Elijah's turn. And so Elijah in verse 30 he says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. That's a, that's a pretty profound statement right there because Elijah is all about restoration. So John the Baptist as well is about restoration. So there is an altar dedicated to the Lord that had been completely dilapidated. Okay? And it's interesting that it's on Mount Carmel, too, which is not mentioned in the Bible, but Mount Carmel must have been a very primitive cult site for, for 
to the Lord at some point in the history way, way, way back, but it's now dilapidated. So it's, it's a symbol of religion going, having fallen into, into disarray and disuse. So he rebuilds the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And it actually it has been thrown down, so it actually not only just had gone into disuse, but probably there was some violence used against it. Okay. Elijah took 12 stones. Okay, what's 12, right? 12 tribes. According to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. This is all real powerful because he's always, he's referencing Genesis, Jacob's struggle with God, that Jacob was renamed Israel. So now we're going back to the patriarchs. We're, in, we're evoking this original covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? Saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. So they soaked the whole, the whole area with water. Even the trench, they filled it with water. Okay? And it says in verse 35, And water ran round the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, O Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that Thou art God in Israel, and that I am Thy servant, and that I have done all these things at Your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that Thou, O Lord, art God, and that Thou hast turned their hearts back. So it has to do with the hearts and the love of the people back to, to loving the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Okay, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God. Okay, then they seized the prophets of Baal and slay them. <laughs> so, um, but the point is, is there, uh, uh, Elijah, he, he brought about a great conversion and the turning of the hearts Back to God, but also back to the fathers, because you got all of this evocation of, or invocation, or evocation at least, of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And if you go back to Malachi, it says again, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Now, if you look in, um, Another passage of Malachi. Let's see here if I got it written down. Yeah, Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. It says, Have we not all one Father? So that's a reference to God. Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So the fatherhood of God and the fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there's a kind of a union between the two. And, uh, you know, in Malachi, the turning of the hearts of the children back to the fathers is, in effect, what we read about in um, Kings, where the hearts were turned back to God, the Father. So to turn back to God, the Father, to turn back to the fathers, it's kind of the same motion, same thing. But what's interesting, though, is that Malachi himself is saying that he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. So the whole, the whole presupposition here is that the fathers are not just these people that lived way back in the ages and they're dead now, and we like to remember them just out of, for the heck of it. They're alive. Fathers are alive. 
they have a spiritual, they're in spiritual communion with the, with the descendants. That's the whole presupposition of all these verses, especially in Luke. It comes very clear in Luke chapter 1, verse 17. None of these passages make sense unless that's true. Um, so let's see here. We can move on. Uh, well, so they died, Father, but they have a spiritual presence? Yeah. 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 Um, now, some people think that, okay, let me I'll phrase it this way. Traditionally speaking, it's been a very, very traditional belief that Elijah is actually going to return before the end of the world, personally. Elijah, the actual person Elijah is going to come back before the end of the world. Um, on the basis of this, pro- of this prophecy from Malachi and then some other passages from the New Testament. And so, if that's true, then when it says Elijah comes in the spirit of, I'm sorry, when John the Baptist comes in the spirit of Elijah, it's like, John the Baptist is Elijah-like. Okay. Now, I think probably a lot of biblical scholars would say, well, mm, no, I don't think the Bible's teaching us that Elijah himself is going to come back and that John the Baptist really is Elijah. So, not is in, in a literal sense, but that he's a, a he is the fulfillment, the primary fulfillment of these prophecies about Elijah coming back. So I don't know the answer to that question. I probably would have a tendency to just to go with the more traditional belief, but I'd have to examine it. Uh, if you go to another passage that can help us kind of add some more background to this is the, is the Apocalypse, one of my favorite books. Right, I quote this all the time here. Chapter 11. Okay. It's going to be um, verse 3. So Apocalypse 11.3 or Revelation 11.3. And I will grant my two witnesses power to prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now the 1,260 days is the three and a half years. That's the traditional, you know, the Antichrist is, is prophesied to uh, persecute the church in a very intense manner for three and a half years right before the second coming of Christ. And <clears throat> for those three and a half years, the church will suffer greatly and there will be many martyrs, but there will be these two supreme martyrs. They're called the two witnesses. And again, some people think, well, if Elijah is not going to come back, then these two witnesses will be just two Christian men. You know, But it could be that another a traditional understanding is that Elijah and Enoch come back talk about Enoch. Elijah and Enoch come back. Because Elijah and Enoch are two people who were lifted up into a heavenly realm bodily and never died. They, did, they never saw death. And so one of the traditions that they're going to come back and they are the two witnesses that the apocalypse is talking about. Enoch was Noah's grandfather. Yes, re- related. Well, however you want to understand the genealogy. He's an ancestor of Noah in any event. He's an ancestor of Noah. Yeah. Um, so the passage here in, in uh, the Apocalypse continues on. These are, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands which stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours forth from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, he is thus doomed to be killed. They have power to... Now look at notice, this is what I want to show you. They have power to do two things. Shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Now, who's the prophet in the Old Testament that shuts up the sky so that there's no rain? Elijah. Elijah. And who's the other prophet that turns water into blood and smites things with plagues? 
Moses. 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 Right, right. So actually, in a certain sense, the more primary allusion, these two witnesses are Elijah and Moses. Moses and Elijah. Okay, so Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses here. Actually, it's often thought that these two people are also modeled on St. Peter and St. Paul, who prophesied, essentially prophesied, in Rome. Okay, and so that they were killed in Rome by Nero, who's a type of the Antichrist. So this is this has got multiple levels of fulfillment here. Okay, um, so it could be Enoch and Elijah, who are these two individuals who were lifted up in body and have not died, and they're going to return. And they're going to prophesy for three and a half years, and then the Antichrist will kill them. That's one. That that could be one sense of what this is dealing with. Another sense is that it seems like at least the information, like the the, the scriptural allusions, are to Moses, Moses and Elijah, not Enoch and Elijah. Moses and Elijah, because Moses is the one that turns the water to blood. Okay. So now that would make sense because on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Christ is transfigured before his uh, three disciples, before Peter and James and John, who are the two men that appear talking with them? Moses and Elijah, exactly. And in Luke it specifically says they're talking to him about his exodus. And his exodus is his passion and his uh, death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. It's It's all encountered as his exodus. Which is very interesting. Uh, so, but that also shows you that Moses and Elijah. It's not like they're up in heaven, going like looking at the wall or something like. Yeah, aren't this is a, these are, this is pretty wallpaper. Like they know what's going on in salvation history. They understand what's taking place, and so they know when Moses when Christ appears to them, uh, or when Christ transfigured, he's basically kind of like uh, almost like uh, the the. The wall between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm are broken down subtly, and there's a kind of a permeability between the two realms. And here's Jesus on earth on Mount Tabor talking to Moses and Elijah in heaven, some sort, some kind of heaven. That's a whole other question about whether they were in heaven properly speaking or not, okay? And so he's speaking to them, but they have full knowledge of what's going on. It's not like they're saying, okay, who are you? And why don't you tell me what you're all about? No, they they speak to him as if what we're we're discussing. It's like they're intimate friends. They know what's taking place. So Moses and Elijah are fully aware, and so Abraham would be too. All the fathers, all the saints, they understand what's going on in salvation history. They're in communion with the events of that are taking place with their descendants and their and their children. Essentially, their spiritual children. They know what's taking place. Uh, the other the other interesting thing, these are just all scripture passages that come in my mind. It's like a big uh, stream of consciousness, if you don't mind. Um, Moses goes up to the mountain and he wants to see God's face. And God says, you can't see my face. And no one can live and see my face. And he says, but I'll show you the, the my back, basically. And God passes by Moses and reveals some some aspect of his glory to him. And then Elijah goes, in part of Elijah's ministry, Elijah's kind of upset because he's getting a lot of resistance and no one's listening to him and he doesn't seem like he's, he doesn't feel like he's successful. Many priests are that way, by the way. He doesn't feel like he's successful in converting people and so he's frustrated and he goes back to his roots. So he goes back to Mount Sinai, exactly where Moses had God reveal himself to him. And then you got the scene, the famous scene where the earthquake goes by and the wind goes by and the fire goes by, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. But the Lord was not in the wind. The Lord was not in the fire. And then a still, small voice. And God reveals himself to Elijah through the still, small voice. And and then Elijah covers his face, too, because he doesn't want to, like, almost... It's almost like he doesn't want to look on God. But So the, the, the God 
whose face Moses and Elijah sought on Mount Sinai, they see on Mount Tabor when Jesus is transfigured before them and his divinity is revealed. It's a pretty, pretty awesome connection there. So the point is I want to show you all that just to say that the, the, the saints are aware of what's taking place on earth with their spiritual children. And um, we go to our next passage here. In Genesis chapter 18, uh, we've read this before. This is a very special passage where we get uh, insight into God's inner conversation. He's got, got this inner process of deliberation. He's thinking to himself. You know, God is talking to himself essentially in 18, uh, 17 to 19. And uh, remember uh, that this was the passage where uh, this is the great annunciation. This is the Genesis annunciation where the three angels come to Abraham and they're going to tell him that he is going to give birth to this chosen seed to Isaac. It says, The men uh, set out from there and they looked towards Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, now here's the Lord speaking to himself, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves by him? No, for I have chosen him that he may charge or command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now that is a really deep passage. Okay, so there's two things going on here, two sort of... Uh, logical directions that I want to draw your attention to. First of all, God has chosen Abraham for the precise reason because Abraham's going to teach his children and his uh, household after him and his descendants in general to uh, keep the commandments of God and to be righteous. So Abraham is chosen to be not just a father of children in general, but to be a father of righteous children and to precisely to be the teacher, the causative role in their righteousness. But the children are going to be righteous so that the promise that was made to Abraham can be fulfilled. It's very interesting. It's very, very interesting. How do you get that? So unless the children are righteous, the promise is not going to be fulfilled. The promise that Abraham would be a father of a multitude of children as numerous as the stars of heaven. That's not going to be fulfilled unless those children are righteous. So the righteousness of the children is really what's key in this whole thing. And Abraham, in a certain sense, is causing that righteousness, but he's also benefiting from that righteousness because it's that righteousness, the righteousness of his children, that's going to bring it about that the promises that God made to him would be fulfilled. So um, I have... Uh, we go on now, St. Luke, going back to the prophecy of Malachi about how Elijah is going to come and he's going to turn the hearts of the, the fathers to the children and then um, turn the children to the teaching of the, of the, and the wisdom of the righteous. I say, basically, the turning of the hearts of the fathers is an effect of the righteousness of their children. So if you think about this, so... How is it that John the Baptist is going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children? Well, what's going to happen is that the children are going to repent and convert and turn to God and become righteous. And then that is going to bring about the turning of the hearts of the fathers to the 
to the children. So that essentially the way that I would imagine this is that Abraham is disappointed in his children who are not following his commandments. <laughs> but then when they start to follow the, the law of God, he's no longer disappointed and he's, he's happy about that and he embraces them. Okay? And he's doing it from heaven. It's a, it's a remarkable thing. And we've got this, uh, uh, so this is the chapter, this is Luke chapter 1. Now if we go to Luke chapter 16 and 17, we find two very important and interesting stories. We've got the parable, there's a parable that Jesus tells of a son, two sons in fact, and a father. What's, what's that all about? What's, what am I talking about? The, the parable of the prodigal son. Now all of us have always learned that that father represents who? God. God. And it certainly does. But what else could that father represent? Abraham. Abraham. And so when the son comes to himself and converts after he's eating the swine's food, and he says, what am I doing? I'm going to go back to my father's house. Okay. And then when the father sees him from afar, his father starts running to him. The hearts of the father is turning to the children. So this is God the Father, but this is Abraham as well. Okay? And then let's go to uh, Luke chapter 16 and we'll read the, what comes out, what comes after that. And I'll have one of you guys read because I've been hogging the, hogging the Bible here. Oh, okay, you know, I'm sorry, I missed, missed So the, the parable of the prodigal son is in chapter 15. 16 is the, what we want here, okay? So um, let's go to 1619. Um, uh, Sarah, do you want to read uh, 1619? Starting from there and go to, go to you know, let's just finish off the chapter. Okay, let me find it. Um, okay, now there was a certain rich man. Mm-hmm. Now there was a certain rich man, and he was clothed in purple and fine linen, faring um, some, I can't read that word. That's all right. Sumptuously. Yep. Every day, and a certain beggar named Lazarus was laid at his gate, full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the richest man's table. Yeah, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and that he was carried away by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died, and he was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Now if you just pause right there for a second. just That, that is a, a wonderfully powerful image. The bosom of Abraham. Think about that. So you've got this poor man who was, was laid at the... He's just on the ground, and the dogs would come and lick up his sores, and he couldn't, he, he was starving to death, and the rich man outside whose gate he was laid every day wouldn't feed him. I mean, this horrible, you know, lay miserable kind of, kind of image, you know, and, and then he dies, and the angels come and escort him to the bosom of Abraham, to the bosom of Abraham. So now here's Abraham, you know, holding him. Think about that. I mean, that's incredible. Like, so it's like Abraham, that whole time when Lazarus was at the door in spirit, Abraham was, was, was holding him. 
And that's the heart of the father turning to the son. That's the love of Abraham for this child. And then in contrast, the rich man is in Hades, far off from Abraham. You think Abraham's happy with the rich man? No. Okay, so go ahead, sir. Um, And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and son Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy, in thy lifetime receivedest thy good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now here he is comforted, and thou art in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, that they that would pass from hence to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from thence to us. And he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham saith, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one go to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, if one rise from the dead. Wow. That's pretty pretty cool, huh? One rise from the dead, there's allusions to Christ's resurrection there. But also Moses and the prophets, they have to listen to Moses and the prophets. I mean, we've been seeing this with Elijah trying to say to people, you've got to listen to Moses and, and the prophets and the fathers and turning back. So we see how converting to God, it, there's this spiritual conversion to the fathers. And here's Abraham in this, with his bosom, with the love that he has. Now, if the rich man had repented, say, hypothetically speaking, uh, if John the Baptist had preached and the rich man had repented, Abraham's heart would have turned to the rich man. But as it is, it's turned away. Okay. Um, so, it's the conversion and it's the righteousness and the innocence slash righteousness of the children that causes the father's hearts to turn to them. Now, so this turning of the hearts of the fathers is an effect of the righteousness of their children. Okay. But also, I would say this as well. The turning of the hearts of the fathers is also a cause of the children's righteousness. All right, so it's, these are the two different directions, the logical directions that are both the case at the same time. I don't actually know how to reconcile them. I'm sure there's some way to reconcile them, but they're, they're both present. And so what I mean by that is that when the, the, the hearts of the fathers turn to the children, that's their intercessory power for them. Okay, that's their prayers for them. And it's the prayers of the fathers that are going to cause the conversion and the righteousness of the of the sons. And so we can go to other passages in the Bible. Uh, there's a very incredible passage in 2 Maccabees, um, chapter 15. Sir, you did a good job, by the way. Thank you for your reading. Uh, so 2 Maccabees, chapter 15. And you have uh, Judas, who is the um, 
this kind of freedom fighter for Israel, and he's fighting against Israel's enemies, uh, leading leading the charge, leading the he's the, he's the kind of the general of the army, and uh, he's they're about to go into a very important battle, and they he, they sleep at that that night, the night before the battle, he sleeps and he has a dream. Judas has a dream. And the dream is not supposed to be just a dream that's the res- that's, that comes forth out of his psyche, but it's supposed to be like a prophetic dream or a dream that's got true insight into the spiritual realms. Okay, And so this is what he saw in verse 12. This is chapter 15, verse 12 in Second Maccabees. What he saw was this. Ananias, who had been high priest, a noble and good man of modest bearing and gentle manner, one who spoke fittingly and had been trained from childhood and all that belongs to excellence, was praying with outstretched hands for the whole body of the Jews. Ananias is dead at this time. So he's seen the spirit of Ananias praying for all the Jews, the whole body of the Jews. Then likewise, a man appeared distinguished by his gray hair and dignity and of marvelous majesty and authority. Almost like a Michelangelo painting or something, right? Okay, and Ananias spoke, saying, This is a man who loves the brethren and prays much for the people and the holy city, uh, city, Jeremiah, the prophet of God. Jeremiah stretched out his right hand and gave to Judas a golden sword. And as he gave it, he addressed him thus, Take this holy sword, a gift from God, with which you will strike down your adversaries. Now he wakes up. Of course, there's no literal sword in his hand, but it's a vision that through the prayers of Jeremiah, victory is being granted to Judas. And what motivates the prayers of Jeremiah... Now remember, okay, so let me try to put this in a time frame. Jeremiah lived around the year 560, 570 B.C., Judas is fighting this battle around the year 180 B.C. So it's hundreds of years after Jeremiah lived on the earth. And Jeremiah is praying, knows everything that's going on, knows that Judas is about to go into a battle, is praying for him, and it says he loves the brethren and he's praying for them. So again, it's the love of the fathers for the children that's now playing a causative role for their conversion and for the coming of the kingdom of God and the realization of the kingdom of God in their midst. So uh, I write in my notes here, there is a clear communion of saints taking place. This communion is only strengthened after the coming of Christ when the just souls of the Old Testament saints get to inherit the promise along with their spiritual children. So where the question arises, where is Jeremiah? Where is Abraham before Christ died and made atonement? Okay, and the traditional answer to that is they're in the uh, the limbo of the fathers, called the limbo of the fathers. So the Old Testament saints who died in the grace of God and in God's friendship, they went to a place of blessedness, but it was not heaven, properly speaking. When we speak about heaven in the Christian sense, we we mean the direct vision of God, what's called the beatific vision. And the Old Testament saints were not admitted into that. Um, they might have gone through a kind of a purgatorial process for a little bit of time, but then after that purgatorial process was done and full atonement had been made for their personal sins, whether there was any to make, whatever, that's just a side note, they would have been a place of blessedness. They would have been gathered to their fathers. Okay, So they talk about the limbo of the fathers. And so the word Hades can mean a lot. Of, it's got a broad sense. you know. So in our creed, we say that Christ descended into hell 
And in the Greek, it's Hades. Okay, Christ descended into Hades. But what we don't mean is the Hades of the damned. We mean the Hades of the fathers, the limbo of the fathers. Okay, that's where Christ went. And then he basically liberated the fathers out of the limbo of the fathers into the, into heaven, properly speaking, into the, into the beatific vision. And so if we want to turn to Hebrews, we can learn that in Hebrews. Uh, chapter 11, verse 39. I had a question. When you said, when you said the gulf. Yeah. So, the rich man wasn't actually in Hades. On that side of the gulf, where Abraham was on, of course, the good side. Yeah. But that wasn't actually considered Hades. Where the rich man was at that point? Or you know, actually, I think if you look at that passage, you go, you visit it again, you look at it again. I actually, I think it's saying that it's the rich man who's in Hades. It's the rich right. man who's right. specifically right. in Hades. But yeah. Is he actually in Hades, or is he not in Hades yet? Uh, he Hades has got a broad meaning, right? You know, so so Hades can be the place of the damned, or it can be the place of of the righteous dead. Okay. And I was just saying that, okay, in, in the case of the passage in, in Luke, it's going to be just the place of the damned. It's going to signify the place I, of the I damned. Other people have said in the past that the good side of the gulf is the bad side of the gulf. That's an interpretation you know I'm saying. Yeah. And, and that aspect. And I didn't actually know if I meant you're, that it's actually hell, or you're waiting to go to hell. Oh, I, uh, yeah, you would see, I, you'd qualify it as hell. The, the Hades of the damned would be called hell. Yeah, you'd, you'd say it's hell. Yep. It's not a good place. That. Yeah, no, it's hell. It's I think that's you could yeah. call it hell in our traditional sense of the word. So the so the Hades of the of the righteous would be like the limbo of the just. Exactly. Okay. Right. Just I'm just saying that the word Hades needs to be disambiguated because it can mean okay. different things in different passages. Oh, okay. So like for example, when Joseph in Genesis is thought to be killed, because remember his brothers are going to kill him. They throw him in a pit. The traders come by, pull him out, and snag him, and then sell him into slavery. Before, and then the brothers come back and they say, oh, "He's gone." Well, okay, what do we do? They kill a goat. They get the blood. They take the multicolored jacket and put the blood of the goat on the jacket, and they bring it back to their dad. And they're like, "Dad, um, uh, I, I don't know what happened to your son, but we found his coat here, and you know, what, what do you think happened?" And then dad's like, "Ah." And he says, you're going to bring my gray hairs down to Hades in sorrow. So that would be an example of the Hades of the just. Okay. Whereas the Hades that's being spoken about here in, in this chapter in Luke would be the Hades of the damned. Okay, what about the place of the wailing and gnashing of teeth? That would be the place yeah. of the damned, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, so if we look in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39... To 40, it says, Hebrews 11 is this huge survey of salvation history. Again, you know, if you wanted these things of like these encapsulations of salvation history, go to Acts chapter 7, where St. Stephen just does this huge survey of salvation history. And then Hebrews chapter 11 would be another one of these big surveys of, of salvation history. And he goes through and he shows how faith is like the, the golden thread that runs all throughout salvation history. That's the point of St. Paul's writing in, in Hebrews chapter 11. But he ends this uh, whole Old Testament survey by saying this, and all of these, meaning Old Testament saints, 
though well attested by their faith, did not receive what was promised. All these promises were made to Abraham, but he never he didn't receive it. Okay, and all the saints, they had all these promises, but they did not receive what was promised, since God had foreseen something better for us, meaning we who live in the New Testament dispensation, that apart from us, they, the Old Testament saints, should not be made perfect. So when we as beneficiaries of the New Testament blessings and realities, you know, have have received them through the death and the resurrection of Christ, along with us, so also the Old Testament saints receive uh, that blessing and those realities then come to pass. So we come to pass and we become inheritors altogether with the Old Testament saints and the New Testament together at the same time. Uh, and that's clear, I think, in uh, chapter uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Well, the, old, the Old Testament uh, saints. Yeah. Now, we're talking um, the age when... Everybody. When, from, when Adam Noah, on, from Noah? From Adam on. From, from Adam on. Yeah. So we're talking so, Adam, we're so talking everybody Seth. everybody died in the flood. That whole, everybody who died in the flood. Well, because many of those people would have been unrighteous, though. That was the well, problem. That's, that's so of old test- everybody might. Yeah. Babies. I, but again, the tradition, and I talked right. about this before, the babies would have been right. saved, obviously. Right. There was no, okay. Right. Uh, the, the, or uh, let's say this, the babies would have been fine. You know, they, they right. would not have been condemned. Right. Uh, and then also in the tradition, many, many people repented. Right. Before the flood came, when they saw it coming, coming. Yes. they said, yeah, yeah. "Oh my God!" Right. Okay, and yes. they repented, and yes. and they died right. having repented. Gotcha. A percentage, we don't know how many. Right. Okay, but in any event, before the flood or after the flood, there were there were there's going to be a, a group of people who died in God's grace, and a, and a group of people who didn't die in God's grace. You know, so then their fates will be diverse. Right. So we're lucky because we're in. We, time of grace. Uh, in a lot of ways, yeah, we're lucky. We've we're, got the most yeah, light. Yeah. You know, we've got the least amount of excuse right now because we've got the most knowledge. I mean, the fullness of revelation, the sacraments. Repentance. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah, we've got so much to go. Yeah. So, um. The devil is staring in the face of everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like the lines are drawn clearly. Yeah. 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 So in chapter, in Hebrews 12, 22 to 23, this is a beautiful passage here. Um, it says, uh, but you have come to Mount Zion. So no longer is it Mount Sinai, but it's Mount Zion that we have come to. Okay, um, And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Remember, we've been talking about the city of God and how the city of God is a symbol of that, that eschatological dwelling place of God. It's the people of God come to the fullness of God's uh, presence and, and promises and hopes. So, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to, what else have we come to? Innumerable angels in festal gathering. So we're in communion with angels, innumerable angels in festal gathering. All right? And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, meaning all, okay, all the Christian, um, uh, who are enrolled in heaven, and to a judge who is, who is God of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Okay, so that would be the just Old Testament saints, the spirits of just men made perfect. They've made, they've been made perfect by the blood of Christ. Alright? Because apart from us, remember what we were saying in the other passage, apart from us they should not be made perfect. 
until he went down to the limbo of the exactly Justin. exactly and and in effect made it perfect yeah that's also referred to as the harrowing of hell or holy saturday so on saturday holy saturday we celebrate that christ's descent into the limbo of the fathers <clears throat> and the bringing up of adam and there's all these great texts about you know uh Christ goes into the darkness and he's looking for Adam. He's looking for Adam. He's looking for Adam, you know. And and he takes Adam and he raises them up, you know, and it's it's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. And it says it says I think there's a passage where it says I will and in that day I will search Jerusalem with lamps. It's a pretty cool passage from one of the prophets. I will search Jerusalem from lamps or with lamps. And uh you know, so there's this kind of light coming into the darkness and then Adam being liberated from from uh from Hades, from the Hades of the Fathers. So, um, I just what I want to show you is that kind of spiritual communion that exists between um, the spirits of the just men. And the spirits of the just men were in communion with their with their children even before the coming of Christ, as we can see from. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet who loves the brethren and prays for them, you know, um, because that took place 180 years. That whole vision of Judas seeing Jeremiah praying took place 180 years before Jesus. So, you know, Jeremiah essentially would have been praying in the limbo of the fathers, you know, and would have been able to, God would have given him a revelation of what was taking place, you know, with his spiritual descendants. And so he would have been able to pray, he would have known what's going on. But then, all the more so, that communion is intensified after the coming of Christ and those spirits of the just men have been made perfect now by the blood of Christ. Now that communion is just all the more close. Um, so. so, and then also, I, this is the point, if you turn the sheet over here, that I said the state of the, the intensity of the holiness of the saints is simultaneously the state of the intensity of their charity. So, sanctifying grace... And charity are correlative. So, in each of us, Lord willing, unless we sin mortally, we are in a state of grace. The life of God dwells in us. And as we grow in our spiritual life, that spiritual life that's in us intensifies and becomes more and more intense. And it, it can reach; it'll reach a certain point. And when we die, our reward and our glorification in heaven will be proportionate to the state of the intensity of that grace that is in us when we die. Okay, so there are all degrees of holiness and the canonized saints usually are very, very holy, you know. Now, but what's correlative with the intensity of grace is the intensity of love or charity in the heart. It's God's love. Uh, in Romans chapter 5, Paul says that, that the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Okay, so with that infused grace comes that infused charity, and the more intense the grace, the more intense the charity. Okay, the holier you are, the more love you have, and really your holiness is judged by your love. Okay, and so you see Jeremiah who loves the brethren intensely, and he prays for them. All right, and you have the bosom of Abraham, the hearts of the fathers. You see all this theme of the love of the fathers for their spiritual children. And uh, so we need to cultivate that now because when we die, our job is going to be praying for our spiritual children. And we, are, we will be spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers vis-a-vis uh, -vis the people who we leave behind. Our natural children, certainly, probably first and foremost, 
um, but but uh, you know your spiritual children. So who who are the people that you have transmitted the life of God to? Um, those are the people that you're going to be ministering to when you when you die, and your love that you have for them now is going to be is going to be the effective, the motivating um, factor, or the motive or the engine, basically, of your prayers in heaven. And I love the saying of St. Therese of Lisieux, who says, I want to spend my heaven doing good on earth. So we're just beginning. Like, our ministry hasn't begun yet. I mean, we're just, we're, we're, we're preparing right now, guys, so we got to get ready, because we're going to be doing good things from heaven. Um, and God will give us understanding of what's taking place on earth. And through our prayers, we will see that we continue to play a role in the unfolding of God's salvific plan and the unfolding of the, of the economy of salvation. So let's go to further on in Luke to the Magnificat with Our Lady's song here. And we might be able to get through the Magnificat, but we probably won't be able to get to the Benedict, Benedictus. Um, so uh, in Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 46 to 53... And then, Rick, do you want to read that? Why don't you read the whole thing? We'll just kind of read the whole thing and then we'll go through piece by piece. So Luke one forty six to 53. Okay, I have to get a Bible. Oh, okay. Here you go. Thank you. Yep. Oh, that's true, yeah. Yep. Yeah, 146 to 53. Is it too small for you to read? You want to use John's? John's got a bigger print. Here you go. That's okay. That's all right. No problem. Oh, wow. Okay. Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For, behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath uh, shewed strength with his arm, and hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats, and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent uh, empty away. He hath uh, opened his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Through 56? Yeah. Well, 55, one last verse. Okay. As he uh, spake to his fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Okay, good. He spoke to our fathers or his fathers? Verse 55. Our fathers, fathers, yeah. So uh, that's probably the King James, right? (laughs) He's got the old-fashioned English there. So um, this is this song of Mary is uh, it is it is a mosaic of Old Testament themes and passages. It's just huge. I mean, when I was preparing to go through this, I was saying to myself, "Oh my gosh, there's no way I can." I mean, I'm just scraping the surface. I'm going to draw your attention to like two or three points out of this. But there's so much. The, the other, you know how what I'm doing is I take a passage and then I show you how there's all these Old Testament passages that are kind of like backing it, you know, under underneath it. If you wanted to do that with this, you, you, no, I'm not joking. Okay, I'm not joking. Probably, 
probably about, I would say, between 60 and 100 really important Old Testament passages and then probably of lesser importance, maybe another 100. Our passages are, are, are backing this up. And what that shows was that um, Mary knew her Bible. <laughs> Mary knew her Bible. I was speaking to the other night to a woman um, and I was discussing how I was saying Mary actually is uh, that was in the days of her earthly life the smartest human being who's ever lived. So the smartest human being who's ever lived is Mary. Okay, because she was born without original sin, uh, her intellect was not did not suffer from the wound of darkness. It's one of the wounds of that's a consequence of original sin. We have the wound of concupiscence and the wound of darkness in our intellect. And so, because Mary didn't suffer from that wound, her reason functioned perfectly like it would have in the Garden of Eden. Her reason functioned perfectly. Now, it could be the case that many learned scientists and scholars today know more details about things like the natural world or facts of history or whatever than Mary did. But the problem is is that in their scheme of knowledge, there's going to be some foundational issues that they're in error about and it will affect the rest of what they know. So they're going to know a lot, a lot of no, they're going to know a lot of true individual facts, but there'll probably be streams in the overall structure of their knowledge that are going to be going off in the wrong direction. Right. Okay. Um, whereas Mary, although her knowledge would have been simple compared to these guys, she wouldn't have known all these details. She's not a scientist, right? You know. But she would never so she'll have ignorance, but she won't have error. Okay. She won't have evolution. She'll never have corruption of bad thoughts. You know, like a normal. She knows who her best friend is. Something come to mind, she interrupted that way. We might think of something you know what I mean, she was already no liberal sense. Yeah. She wouldn't even think of anything that was wrong. That's true too. Her her thoughts would always been pure. Not been corrupted at all. But also as far as intellectual error goes, she would have had prudence, the virtue of prudence to the nth degree, so that she would know what she doesn't know. See, that's where we get into error is when we, we don't know what we don't know and our pride causes us to overextend ourselves beyond what we really know. And then we start building castles uh, in the air. All right, And that's where our error comes from. But if we were perfectly prudent, we would never make those false steps in our beginning of our thoughts. So we'd just be like, oh, I don't know about that. So Mary probably just didn't speak a lot, just said, I don't know a lot. But everything she knew was directly right on and everything she said would have been like a razor-sharp word of God to everybody's soul whenever she spoke, okay? Um, so, But she's also a Bible expert. Are, are you saying that her accuracy... We keep talking about how pure... So you're talking about her accuracy of behavior and actions and words, uh, how, how pure it is compared to others, puts her completely in a, in a league by herself. Yes, but purity in terms of we got the moral issue, but also I'm talking about an intellectual issue right now. She wouldn't have had any intellectual error, you know, because you could have someone who is right morally. That, that, that's that's due to a purity being so yes. pure. Sure. And 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 the two together. Yeah. Put her totally in a league all by herself. herself. Absolutely. She's, she's basically right all the time, but she's, she's not exactly. But she's also reserved to not necessarily voicing her opinion unless she's asked it because right. she, part of right. part of being uh, good is being humble. She's exactly. And always does God's will. And always does God's will. Is modest, 
humble, and but she was a supreme contemplative. So every every event that every mystery that was revealed through the life of Christ, Mary, it says in the scriptures, and Mary pondered all these things in her heart. Is that how she was able to deal with watching Jesus on the cross? Sure. Yeah. Because I've never been able to understand how a mother mm-hmm. could have stayed so calm throughout that whole event because there was nothing. Yeah. You know, she basically acted like she was there supporting her son. Yeah. But not the way I would have thought she should yeah. have behaved or would have behaved. So it's because she actually had insight. She knew. She knew. She knew. She would have known. She would have known. She would have known before the incarnation ever took place. Uh, the messianic prophecies about the suffering of the Messiah. She would have understood the Messiah was to come and to suffer. And now she never, in her humility, ever assumed that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah. But then when it was announced to her, and she said she gave her fiat, she said, may it be done according to your will, may it be done to me according to your will, she would have been able to apply all her biblical knowledge and the knowledge of the Messianic prophecies immediately. She would have known. So when she said, let it be done to me according to your will, she knew what that yes meant. That yes meant the passion of Christ. There's no doubt about it. She said yes to the passion from the, from the moment that she said yes to God and, and cooperated in the incarnation. So, uh, because she's a Bible expert. She knows her Bible. She knows all the prophecies. She could, because of her purity, she'd be able to read them and understand them clearly and have insight, inspiration too as well. She was inspired by the Holy Spirit. She would have the gifts of the Holy Spirit flowing in her in a, to, in a preeminent degree. And you do see some of her knowledge come out at the end when she, I forgot who she says it to, she wants to go back and say goodbye because her time is, her time is, you know, basically she knows she's going to die. Which, and she wants to travel back to say goodbye to... Uh, she asked one of them to escort her back, hmm. so she could say goodbye to the other the other disciples or something. And that I always thought that was strange how she had such insight that she was actually going to die before she ends up in dying. Hmm. Yeah, I think you'd have to. I don't know if you're referencing a scripture passage. You have to maybe something out of tradition that you heard or read somewhere. No, it was something I read. Yeah, I, I could look. I could yeah. look it up again um, and get it to. So, if you ever look at icons of the Annunciation, look at the different icons and the paintings of the Annunciation when the angel comes to, comes to Mary. Oftentimes, there's a Bible sitting next to her. So she's reading the Bible. She's, she's really, she knows her Bible. And, but that's, it's believable when you look at the Magnificat. It's incredible. There's so much scripture here. So I'm only going to draw your attention to a few verses, okay? So if we look in verse 48, it says, Mary says this, He has looked upon the lowest state of his handmaid. He has looked upon the lowest state of his handmaid. And there's three Greek words here. Epiblepo is to look upon. Lowest state is uh, tapenosis. And then handmaid is doule. So like female slave. All right. Now all three of those words, we can go back to 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. Um, and this is where Hannah, who is wanting the child, she's, she's barren, um, she can't have the child. She's going to be the mother of Samuel, the prophet. And she prays to God. She says, O oh Lord, if... And this is from the Greek Bible. I'm just quoting the Greek Bible. Uh, o oh Lord, if looking upon, you will look upon, epiblepo, the lowest state, tapenosis, of your handmaid, dule. Okay, so that's a, Mary is alluding to Hannah. And actually, after Hannah uh, has her prayers answered, she breaks forth into like a magnificat of her own. 
Okay, And that Magnificat is messianic. It ends with a reference to the Messiah. And so she understands that she's got this role in this greater salvific plan that is messianic in nature and she's singing and, and rejoicing. And Mary's song is modeled on Hannah's song. So that's, Hannah's song is one of the many thing, many Old Testament texts that underlies Hannah's song. But I want to draw your attention to the word tapenosis, which is translated low estate or uh, uh, lowliness or humiliation or humility. It's translated many different ways. But low estate is probably one of the better translations. The word tapenosis in particular is found in the Greek Old Testament as a translation of the Hebrew words oni. So there's this Hebrew word oni that means low estate or affliction. Okay, In the biblical context, these words tapenosis and oni are often descriptive of the affliction that is the result of the persecution or oppression from which God delivers His chosen ones. Okay, so Mary is not. We can. There's all these lessons about the virtue of humility that we can learn from this, but there's a deeper thing going on here. I'm trying to draw your attention to this word. Low estate has to do with the affliction that's the result of oppression from the enemies of God persecuting the elect people of God. Okay, so Luke is in effect associating Mary with. Hannah and other Old Testament women whose barrenness is ultimately overcome by God's power. The other text that underlies this is from Genesis 29:32. Remember we talked last time about the seed under threat, how there's the promise of the seed, but then there's all this threat that takes place that the seed's not going to actually come about because Sarah's been taken by Pharaoh into Egypt and so she's not going to be able to have a child with Abraham. Or... Um, there's going to be an intermarriage between the sons of Shechem and the sons of Israel and the, the Holy Seed is going to be dissipated through marriage with pagans. Okay, there's all this threat to the seed coming about and there's this drama that you know we think it's not going to turn out well but it turns out okay in the end. It's that, that sort of thing with all the, 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 the tension and the drama. Well, one of the ways that the seed is under threat is when Jacob marries and he has... Uh, he ends up having four wives, if I'm not mistaken. So he's, remember, he labors for the hand of one of the, I think it's Rachel, and Leah is given to him by like trick, trickery. Laban gives him Leah, and then he works another seven years for Rachel. But then Rachel's barren, okay. And so then they do this whole thing with the hand, with the, the he has like these other these these concubines, these wives that he has. So he ends up having basically four wives for the sake of having children because there's this whole thing that they're not going to have children all this stuff. So one of those women who, who can't have children, I can't remember which one it is, she, after giving birth, talks about how God has looked upon her low estate. Okay? So, just like Hannah who says, now God's looking upon my low estate. So Luke is associating Mary with Hannah and other Old Testament women whose barrenness is ultimately overcome by God's power. He... Thereby connecting her, he is thereby connecting her with the broader Old Testament theme of the righteous poor in whom God's salvific purpose develops and ultimately comes to triumphant fruition despite trials and opposition. Notice I'm using all these words very deliberately. So think about this. The righteous poor, okay, in whom God's salvific purpose, in whom God's salvific purpose, um, develops, like the child in a mother's womb, 
and then comes to triumphant fruition despite trials and oppositions. And remember, we go back to the image in the apocalypse of the woman who is in labor, giving birth to the child, and the dragon is there ready to seize on the child. And the child is caught up right at the last minute, so the dragon can't get him. But then the dragon goes off to wage war on her other children. So that image in the apocalypse encompasses all of the Old Testament drama. Okay? So, um, and then I've got all these verses. So Genesis 31-42 is... Um, actually, I can't recall what that... Oh, yeah. 31-42 is Jacob in the house of Laban. And Laban is oppressing Jacob and playing all those tricks on him. He switches up the wife. He makes him labor this thing. He makes him labor in that. And Jacob is like a slave in the house of Laban until finally Jacob says, I'm out of here, and he escapes. And Laban pursues Jacob and then God stops it right at the last minute before Laban is able to catch up and kill Jacob. What does that sound like? Abraham. Abraham, sure. Abraham, remember Abraham goes to Pharaoh, but what does it sound more fundamentally like? Where it's the second book of the Bible, we're about to get into it. I'm sorry, second book of the Old Testament. You've got Exodus, right? So you've got the children of Israel, they're slaves in in Egypt, okay, and they're laboring. Moses. Moses is liberating. Okay, so you've got you've got all the children of Israel and they're Egypt and they're laboring under the slavery and the servitude and the affliction, and then God comes down and he delivers them, and then after he delivers them out of Egypt, Pharaoh pursues him. And is almost about to get him, and then God intervenes with the Red Sea and kills the Pharaoh and his army and all that kind of stuff. So the same thing took place like in a prophetic foreshadowing with Jacob in the house of Laban. He's made to work and serve like a slave under Laban. Eventually he escapes, he gets out, Laban pursues him, it's about to kill him, and God intervenes at the last minute and stops, stops it from taking place. So, but in any event, Jacob says, he uses the word oni, he says, God saw my affliction, and he li- and he came and he liberated me. All right, so I've got all of these verses where this word oni shows up. Now, who else gets captured into Egypt in the book of uh, Genesis? Who becomes like the chief of Egypt? Joseph. Joseph's captured into Egypt and he's made like a slave. Okay, he's put into prison and all this kind of stuff. Now, after he's let out of prison, he's liberated. He has a wife that he's given a wife or two wives. I can't remember. I think at least one. And uh, he has a child with her, and he names the child something, and he says, "For God has seen my affliction, the oni, the tapenosis. God has seen my tapenosis, the lowest state of his servant." Okay, just like Mary. So Mary, when Mary says that God has looked upon the lowest state, she is invoking all of this, all of it. Okay, now. Uh, it's, there's all these verses, okay. The voice of these righteous poor often becomes that of the elect people of God as a whole. Okay, so now you go to Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. And it says that... Um, actually, this would be worth looking at, that one. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. So God appears to Moses, reveals himself to him at the burning bush. Okay, this is safe verse 5, right? It says... Or in verse 4, Moses, Moses, and he said, here am I, do not come near, put off your shoes from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. 
And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have seen the affliction, the oni, the tapenosis, the lowliness, the low estate. I have seen the low estate of my people. I have looked upon the low estate of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. I have come down to deliver them. It's a foreshadowing of the Incarnation. It's like, what, how do you mean God comes down to... You know, like I said, I think I said this last time, God is... He doesn't, he's not in space. He doesn't exist in space. He's not a corporeal being. How is it in the Old Testament we always see God coming down or we hear about this language of God coming down? It's, it's a foreshadowing of God coming down in the incarnation and in the womb, into the womb of the Blessed Mother. So Mary is invoking all of this salvation history and the, the, the affliction and the trials and the lowest state of Israel being oppressed by its persecutors. We've only got a few minutes left here. If I can just kind of full, like tease us out to, to even more so, okay? Um, so we see that all through these different passages. Um, and then also we see this word oni and tapenosis all throughout the Psalms. When the psalmist, who's speaking as David, as King David, is always constantly talking about his enemies coming and pressing him. God has seen the, the affliction of me and versus my enemies, all this stuff. And that is, uh, David uh, lived a certain life, phase of his life um, when Saul was persecuting him. Okay, Saul, the evil king, was persecuting David, the righteous king. Okay, And this is David going through all this suffering and oppression and persecution, uh, although he was righteous. And it's prophetic of Jesus and the, the suffering that Christ went through, the passion of Christ. So when David spoke all those things, he spoke them prophetically as if he were the Messiah himself, God's anointed, which in a certain way he was because he was the anointed of the Lord, even though he wasn't recognized as such in the time when Saul was persecuting him. It was only after Saul would die that David would be able to come to the rightful position and be recognized as as the Messiah, as the anointed, as the anointed, as the Christ. Okay? So, but that's all prophetic of Jesus, um, that Jesus, his suffering came first and then his exaltation, his enthronement in heaven, so forth and so on. So, um, all of this theme of the righteous poor ones in the Old Testament who are suffering, who are reduced to a lo- state of, a lowest state, to the state of affliction, um, it is prophetic of mess, of, of the Messiah. It's prophetic of all the chosen people of God throughout all ages. So if you want to be a true son or daughter of God, you've got to expect affliction. You've got to expect opposition, persecution. You've got to expect it. You know? it's, got to, it's got to happen, um, more or less. You know? And the more righteous, the closer to God you get, the more suffering you're going to get. All right? so, uh, but also, this is another thing that I think is really important. I'm going to kind of end on this note here. Unfortunately, we can't go further. Um, through these words, tapenosis and otni, this affliction, this lowest state that we're talking about, we clarify the identity of the enemies of Israel. Because all you have to do is to go to all these passages where we see the people of God being afflicted, and all we have to do is who are they being afflicted by? 
And that is, those are the enemies of Israel. And now what we learn about, finally, we come to understand the, the Proto-Evangelion in Genesis chapter 3 when it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head. You will strike his heel. I will place enmity between you, devil, and the woman, Mary, or elect people of God in general. Between your seed, the seed of the devil. That's the one part we haven't talked about yet, is the seed of the devil. Who are the seed of the devil? Those who oppress Israel. And so all we have to do is go throughout the whole Old Testament and look at who are these people that oppress Israel. And you've got two kinds. You've got groups of people that oppress Israel, and then you've got infamous individuals who oppress Okay, And the group are basically, they are the seed of the serpent. But just like the seed of Abraham can be a group, but also an individual, so also the seed of the serpent can be a group, but also an individual. And that's the Antichrist. Okay, So the Antichrist is throughout the entire Bible. He's, it's riddled. All th- if you know what to look for. Okay, if you understand who the seed of the serpent is, it's everywhere. So as far as seed of the serpent in terms of groups, remember when I was telling you the story about Jacob being oppressed? Who was he being oppressed by? Remember, uh, it was Laban. Okay, <laughs> Laban is the seed of the serpent in that capacity. He's the seed of the serpent. Groups, who were oppressing the Israelites in Egypt? I mean, the Egyptians Egypt. in general. That's the seed of the serpent. But who's the leader of the Egyptians? Pharaoh who is a type of the Antichrist. Okay? And remember, Pharaoh's trying to throw the babies into the water, and so we get the dragon in the apocalypse who's ready to snag the baby, you know? Okay, because it's, it's the seed of the serpent going after the seed of the woman. That's where the combat is, okay? So you've got, um, you've got Laban, you've got, the, you've got Cain, is the first expression of the seed of the serpent. He's an individual too. Okay, He kills Abel. You've got the Philistines who oppress Israel. You've got the Canaanites. You've got um, all of those who persecuted the messianic figure of David. Those would be the seed of the serpent too. But who's the individual that persecuted David? Saul. Saul. And he's an individual, so Saul's a type of the Antichrist. Well, like King Ahab, or Ahab... Uh... Ahab would be a type of the Antichrist. Yeah. Exactly. Hitler. Exactly. Hitler in, in, in post-Christian, yeah, in a certain sense, because he, he was specifically going after the Jews, who still retain, even though they have not accepted the Messiah, unfortunately, they still retain some status. They're beloved for the sake of the fathers. And they're not outside God's plan of salvation, and we believe that they will, they will believe in Jesus before Jesus turn, uh, comes at the end. And so, in as much as they're still, uh, in a certain sense, the elect people of God, and Hitler aimed himself, he, he, he totally directed all his efforts against them, Hitler was an antichrist in that, in that respect. Um, it's scary, too, because it was, a, it was a Christian country. Yeah. Uh, so you've got... Now, when you read the Old Testament prophets, you have the Gentiles who come to Jerusalem, and they come to Jerusalem for two reasons. The first reason they come to Jerusalem is to destroy it. And the second reason they come to Jerusalem is to learn the law of God and to be converted. Which, which group do we want to be in? Right? That's the question. Okay. So, um, let's see here. Go on. So the seed of the serpent can be seen as an individual as well. Cain, the king of Babylon. Remember one of our first or second sessions we talked about the king of Babylon. The king of Tyre that we read about in Ezekiel. Holofernes, 
is this general in the book of Judith and Judith cuts his head off. Okay? So he's a type of the Antichrist. Antiochus Epiphanes, who's the guy that shows up in Daniel and Maccabees and he becomes the figure on which the Antichrist in the New Testament is talked to, is, is um, uh, uh, you know, modeled. You've got Nero. You've got Simon Magus in Acts. Okay? So all of these, so then I end off by saying this. Just as the seed of the woman is an individual Messiah who has a body, because we talk about the body of Christ, right? The New Jerusalem and those who are marked for life. So the seed of the serpent is an individual anti-Messiah, an antichrist, and he too has his body. So you could talk about the body of the antichrist, and that is the city of Babylon and those who receive the mark of the beast. That's how it works. It's the city of man or the city of Babylon or the city of God, the city of Jerusalem. These people are marked by the mark of the beast. These people are marked on their foreheads and spared by the sign of the cross. And just like this, the Christ leads uh, the anti the Christ leads this group. The Antichrist leads that group. So that's this is the big scheme of salvation history. That's what I'm trying to show you. So uh, we can call to call tonight. Here is there final comments or thoughts or anything? But we know who wins. We know who wins too. That's the beautiful thing. And so our job is is faith and yeah. and obedience and to be on the right side. And to be on the right side. Well, yeah, there's a movie uh, coming out on Friday about the Exodus. Did you, oh yeah. Did, uh, 